And so I want to be as practical and helpful as I can this morning from God's word in giving you a framework, a framework for godly living. That's really what the Holy Spirit is after in Second Peter. That's the theme of the letter is living a godly life in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is after is, is that you and I remain, um, and all believers, persistent and steadfast in a, living a godly life. So to start this morning, I'd like to begin in chapter 3, verse 9, where we left off. And we will pick up here again, as I said, in a more detailed verse-by-verse exposition in a, in a few weeks. But this morning, I'm going to really focus in on a theme that you'll see here on a pattern of certain living. So I'm going to read beginning in chapter 3, verse 9 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pause and pray one more time to ask God's help. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have just sung a prayer. And now having read a portion of your word and, and now endeavoring to preach that word and to I want to be a faithful shepherd and to guide your sheep who are here this morning. We pray that you would, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your awesome power and grace, draw near to us and not only give us understanding intellectually of your word, but may we love it. And may our lives increasingly, individually and together as a church, reflect the shape of Scripture which is Christ himself, our risen Lord, we just sang about. We pray this in his name. Amen. Peter is 
teaching in this section on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his return, his second coming, and this dominant biblical theme of the coming judgment of the Lord, which is the day of the Lord. And we'll look more in depth at that, as I said, in a few weeks, Lord willing. But his teaching about the second coming of Christ and about this future judgment upon this world that is coming and that no one can escape apart from being in Christ, his purpose in countering the false claims of of ungodly false teachers is not merely to inform the heads of believers. He is teaching certain truths, but look with me. He's after a certain kind of life. Verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. In other words, in light of the coming day of the Lord, the judgment that's coming upon this earth, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter's pastoral heart for these believers to whom he is writing is that their lives reflect a certain pattern, are demonstrated by a certain character. He calls upon believers in verse 14, to be found, to be diligent, that there's to be a a consistency in this kind of Christian living. And in that living, we are certainly to be in peace, spotless and blameless. In verse 17, he is again pastorally appealing to the believers that they not give in to the false teachers, leading them astray, downplaying the coming of Christ, downplaying um, the need to live a holy life. Don't listen to them, Peter's saying. Instead, don't depart, verse 17. Do not be carried away from the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness in what? And that's my heart this morning, is to really try to spell that out for you. I wanted to give to you a framework for godly living. And if you've listened to me preach for any amount of time, you know that I am largely averse adverse against. I'm not a big fan of three principles, five steps, seven steps, seven keys. I'm not too big on that. I tend to just go through and hopefully have an outline. But again, I was thinking, I hope with a shepherd's heart about you and um, some of you in the the stage that you're in right now, and, and you are in a very difficult time. You love the Lord Jesus, but you're facing different circumstances coming to you from different directions, and it's, it's very troubling and disconcerting. And they're not little. They're real. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. Um, some of you are in just a stage of life where you're, you're in a time of transition. There's a lot of young adults in our church, interestingly. And I'm so thankful for that. And a lot of you are making some big decisions right now deciding how you're going to live. And, and you have the world telling you all these things you must do and how you must live. And in, even within Christianity, there's, there's so much confusion in our day. And so I want to give to you this framework, and it's five, five principles or, or realities or truths. And, and they all happen to start with F. And, and I didn't actually even work on that. Like, again, if you know, I didn't, I didn't spend an hour. Boy, I got to come up with five. And, and if you want, and kids especially, but some of you, you can actually use this on your hand, all right? So this, this may be the first and the last time I ever have something this memorable. And if you, we'll see how this goes. Um, 
but I really, this, I didn't work to try to fit in a fifth, you see, so to make a, a slick. I really didn't. What I'm sharing with you is, I hope it better, your Bereans, you'll check, is arising out of the text, not only of Second Peter, but of First Peter. We'll look at those two letters in particular this morning. But, but a general, just in, in God's words, these, these truths, these principles are like four walls and a roof. They, they are where I live my life. And when I am not living in the context of these principles, the rain starts coming in. So let me give them to you up front. Number one, the fear of God. Number one, the fear of God. And, and the order of these is intentional. The fear of God, secondly, faith in God. Fear of God, faith in God and his promises. Thirdly, feeding on God's word. Feeding on God's word. Fourth, and if, you're, if you have your hand, your you're fear of God, faith in God, feeding on God's word. Fourth, forgiving others. Forgiving others as you've been forgiven. And fifth, and finally, fulfilling your God-given duties. Fulfilling your God-given duties. We're going to go through these one at a time this morning. First, fear of God. One of the characteristics of the false teachers that Peter is exposing in this letter, and he rails against, is that these false teachers are characterized by little or no fear of God. They don't even fear angelic, powerful forces. Over in chapter 2, verse 10, Peter had told us that these false teachers, these arrogant, self-important men, they are daring, self-willed, and do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They're claiming the power to be able to cast out demons just by their own name. And, and there is out there, I don't look, but I've been told, some of you have told me some specific examples, but in our day and age, there are more than a few false teachers on the internet and who claim to have some power to change people's lives and, and cast out demons. And they, they talk to demons, they shout at demons, they so forth. Well, it, it follows that if these false teachers don't even fear angelic beings that, that are so powerful, they certainly don't fear God. In general, the, the characteristic of these men is they, there is a marked lack of fear of God. In Romans 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul, quoting from Psalm 36, puts it this way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, that's a really bad thing. Fear of God. You can check me on this. Fear of God is the first and most foundational godly response before any other. Fear of God is the first and most foundational godly response before any other. Before you love him, 
And love is very closely tied with fear. We'll see that in a moment. But Proverbs 1-7, you know this, and numerous other passages in the Psalms. Psalm, Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the start. It's the first step. And what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to live in accordance with God, your creator and king. Put it more simply, wisdom is knowing how to live in agreement with reality. The reality is that God made you. He is your creator and he is king. And you are made by him to glorify him. And you got to reckon with that. Every man and woman does. A lot of people think of religion as faith, as something like a choice, and, you know, I take it up, and that works for you. No, you don't understand. There is a God. He made you, and whether you think it or like it or know it or believe it or are interested in it is irrelevant. You can jump up and pound your head into the concrete, and if you believe it's a pillow, you can think that all you want. It is not a pillow. God is... He was, he is, and he always will be. Wisdom is knowing how to live your days in light of that reality that God is. Spending your time, your thoughts, that's what wisdom is. What does the Bible then mean by fear? If fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what does the Bible mean by fear? Fear is a response of the heart reserved for God and God alone, ultimately. Fear is a response of the heart. It is awe. It is trembling. There are some versions today, uh, translations, and some teachers who will downplay the fear aspect and say, well, for the believers, it just means reverence. And it does mean revere, and it does mean reverence, but it does mean fear. Trembling. For the believer, it is a filial or a loving fear. But when everyone is in God's presence, um, men, women, and angels and demons will tremble before him the sheer majesty of his being. To fear God is really the essence of sanity. What did Jesus say? I, who, who, do not fear men. I tell you who you should fear, said Jesus. Fear the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. So fear is awe with trembling. You, you, you mean, this means as a believer, you are overawed with God. That with, like Job at the end of his life, or not at the end of his life, at the end of his sorrows, <laughs> and he did fear God, but when God talked to him, he didn't say afterwards, oh Lord, I'm so comforted. That was just wonderful. <laughs> Put my hand over my mouth. He was in awe of God. It is reverence, but it's more than that. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. And by the way, we're going to spend most of our time on this first principle, and then we'll have to move quickly, I know. But 
if I'm spending a, a, a disproportionate amount of time on this first point, it's in part because if you were to ask me what is the most defining, glaring absence in modern professing Christianity in evangelicalism, my answer would be lack of the fear of God before anything else. And I'm not alone in that. Others have noted that. Isaiah 8 is, is an amazing passage. Eight, Isaiah is a, a prophet. He is primarily preaching to the kingdom of Judah in the south. Uh, by his time, um, Israel in the north is being attacked, has been attacked by the Assyrians. And so uh, people are starting to figure out what can happen uh, from these powerful foreign powers. Judah in the south seems strong at this point. And um, they, are, they are rebelling against God. They are arrogant. They are self-dependent. And Isaiah has a ministry of calling them to repent, but he also is calling them to repent, and he's calling them to trust God. And part of trusting God is to not fear the Assyrians. Part of trusting God is to not fear the Babylonians, but to fear the God who can take out 185,000 of their soldiers in one night. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, and this is this is one of the verses or the passages in the Bible that my mind goes to perhaps most frequently for my own soul. So I commend it to you because I'm, I'm tempted to be scared. I'm a scaredy cat by nature. I'm, I'm not by nature, I don't have, by nature have much courage. So this is really helpful. Verse 11. Isaiah says, the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. What's going on there? It's a a strange dynamic. The people in Judah generally were were self-dependent, I mean, self-reliant. They trusted in their idols. They trusted in their own ability. And yet they were fraught with fear. Does that sound like our culture? Oh, yeah, we got this. We got all our gadgets, all this self-confidence and everybody talking about themselves and a generation that is more depressed and anxious than any that has ever proceeded in American history, at least. And so they're, they're afraid. Of, they're afraid of conspiracies. They're, they're looking about in fear and they're anxious. And here God commands, verse 12, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Dread of it. it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And then these words, unbelievable, so powerful. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Wow. I have to constantly, rather, well, regularly tell myself, you're not allowed to be afraid of that. It's off limits. So many of you, this is a little side, pastoral counseling, so many of you would be helped if you just came to terms with how awesome and fearful God is and then other things you just talked to yourself and said, self, little self, those other things that are scary, you're not allowed to fear that. Because I have to fear God. I can't fear people. I can't fear what people think. I can't fear what might happen in the future, and I don't know. I can't fear financial ruin. I can't fear the IRS. 
I can't fear Big Brother. I can't fear China. I can't fear... No, I'm not allowed to do any of that. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. The Lord shall be my fear, and the Lord shall be my dread. Fear is a heart response that God claims belonging to him and him alone. You say, well, shouldn't we be afraid of, you know, getting hurt? Yes. Yeah, that's good. It's that self, that's self-preservation. Or, or should we, is it, is it good for a parent to be a little bit concerned about their child? Of course, that's an aspect of love. But think about it. Think about it. Theologically, that fear is a godly fear because if you are afraid of getting too near to a cliff, cliff and falling off, you're actually fearing God because you are made in God's image and God has commanded you to protect and preserve life. So that's a good fear. This isn't saying that we should just be reckless, heedless, but that our fear is reserved for fear of God alone. God is ultimately worthy of our dread and awe. But many today in, in the church would say, that's terrible. I can't believe your pastor is teaching that. I mean, you don't have to fear God anymore now that Jesus has come. That is utter foolishness. Utter foolishness. We read this morning at the call to worship, fear God and give him glory. Revelation 14, verse 7, for his hour of judgment has come, worship him. That call was given to all the earth. Well, someone could say, well, I suppose they could, I mean, that's to everybody, believer and unbeliever. But someone could say, well, that's especially for the unrepentant. Well, what about Revelation chapter 19, verse 5? Give praise to our God, all you his servants, all you his slaves. That's us. You who fear him, the small and great. God's servants there are described as those who fear him. They are God-fearing men and women. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a God-fearing, Christ-loving man or woman. And that fear of God, that dread and that awe, is not, is not, does not lead to our, our misery. Far from it. Back to that Isaiah chapter 8 passage, if you're still there. If you're not, it's okay. But the Lord shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And then the verse next is, then he shall become a sanctuary. They go hand in hand. And the way to have peace and protection and comfort is when you realize that the only one who's worthy of your fear and dread is the one who loves you and sent his son to die for you and who says, I'll be with you and I'll never leave you or forsake you. No one can take you out of my hand. When you lean, learn that the God who is worthy of your dread and the only one who is omnipotent and awesome is the one who has you, you feel so safe, so safe. Because you're in, you're in the God who you fear, you're in his loving arms. So much of our anxiety has to do with a failure to cultivate in our hearts a fear of God. Just the other night, Friday night, um, we had a powerful, some of you had lightning storms around you coming through these these systems coming through. I had an almost Martin Luther moment. If 
you know his story, uh, I, I was not converted, but uh, he was converted by a lightning, just about. He, he went from being a, a man, he, he, he almost got hit by lightning, and he, he didn't know the Lord at that point. He said, oh, God, I'll be a monk. He thought if he would be a monk, he'd be safe. I mean, I, I, I think I almost went to be with the Lord. Friday night, the hits so close up in our barn where, where I was, and uh, I was a little afraid. But what I do immediately is, that's just, that's just a slight little lesson reminder of the power of my God. I don't be afraid of the lightning. I just need to fear God. Fear of God and love of God goes hand in hand. Deuteronomy 10, 12. So now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him. Love of God and fear of God go hand in hand. The near continual temptation is to forget the fear of God and to live in fear and dread of others or other circumstances. The fear of God is the first frame, first framework, wall, if you will. It's, it's part of my life. It's actually what I do. Is I, part I read his word is I can try to, I must, I must work to get through my thick, sinful head that God shall be your fear, God shall be your dread, and live in light of that. It's partly why I'm here this morning to worship. It's not just because it's my job. It's not simply because I love him. It's not simply because it's good for me, and, I, and all that's true. I must worship God. I don't know about you, but I, I must. I have to. My, my conscience, I mean, the word of God, this God is to be praised, and... Uh, I want to, but he must be. Fear God and give him glory. This course leads to our worship. It certainly involves in our praying. This is why we pray. It's because we honor God by calling upon him, praising him, recognizing him, and lifting our needs of our hearts to him. Before we go to anybody else, we go to him because he's the one who can help us. He has the power. He has the ability He's the one we fear. Fear of God. Secondly, this morning, quickly, faith in God and in his promises. Faith in God. Maybe we should just, before we go any further, just ask yourself, do I fear God? Does my life indicate a certain fear of God? Along with love of him, uh, I hope you enjoy as a believer his, his grace, and, and he wants you to, but at the root of that is a is a Holy, loving, gracious fear. Secondly, faith in God. We start the Christian life by believing the gospel, right? We're sinners, and and God, in his mercy and kindness, sends someone to tell us that the truth, that we're in trouble, and that we are headed for judgment, but the good news that God has provided for forgiveness of sinners, that God gave his own son, Jesus, to live a life of obedience that we have not lived, could not live, And that Jesus, God gave Jesus, his son, on the cross to bear in himself the penalty for our sins. That he bore the wrath, as we sang this morning. Bore the wrath. That was God's plan. We believe, we start the the Christian life by believing that glorious gospel, that good news. But that is how we continue. We don't start there and, and that's all we believe. 
the whole Bible in, is, a, is a, virtually a promise of God to his people. Just look in Second Peter with me for a, a few examples. And Hebrews would be the other book where we would go to think of this theme of faith. But even here in Second Peter, is, we are being, Peter is calling us to faith. We are, for, for example, he says in chapter 1, verse 1, he calls these people to whom he's writing, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. That is, they've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, his life and his death on the cross, his resurrection. They have believed, and that is a gift from God. And to these believers, verse 4, God has granted us precious and magnificent promises, plural, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. God has given to us numerous promises in his word. They They are dripping virtually off every page of the Bible. For example, over in chapter 2, verse 9, when, when Peter's describing the judgment that's coming upon the world, and he's referring back to the flood in Noah's day, he gives there in verse 9 a, a certain truth. It's a promise, a declaration. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, or another way it can be translated as trial. So this week, you're going to face a trial or you are this morning, you're going to face a temptation. You have a promise here. God knows how to rescue you in and from that trial. He's not going to leave me. There is no temptation or trial that is too great that God will not provide for. doesn't mean it won't be easy. The Christian life is full of tears Suffering, that's not all. It's full of joy, love, kindness, grace. It is, it is life in the Lord Jesus. But in that life for now, in this world, we face various trials of different kinds. And they, they're surprising sometimes. And sometimes they're of the sort that you really would have a hard time describing to somebody else. It could be other people. It could be relationships. It could be a combination of of things, of, of physical realities that you're facing, along with relational or work. The combination can be amazing, and, and our temptation is to somehow just rely upon our own wit, rather than learning to rely on God's promises. They're all over. We read some of them this morning in Psalm 73 that he will not abandon his holy ones. He will not leave us, that he is near. All these promises that we need to continually remind ourselves, God has said, Jesus has said, he will not leave me or forsake me. God, I thank you that you are with me right now and you know where I am and you know this mess that I'm in. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to relate to this, but I am so thankful that I know from your word you are here. So thankful, Lord, for your promise that if anyone asks, lacks wisdom, you can ask of God, Lord, I don't know what to do. Will you please bring into my life those who are wise or godly? Will you please open up your word to me? Promise after promise after promise. Second Peter 
we are looking for, by his promises, we are looking for Verse 13, chapter 3 of Second Peter, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That promise of the future, of what God will do in the new earth and the new heaven, the kingdom of Christ, the peace of that, the joy of that, the life of that, the absence of evil, the, the, the thriving of that, period of time that is coming because God has promised it is is a ballast for the believer's soul. It is it is the point on the horizon through scripture by which we are looking at that keeps us from getting sick in this world, seasick if you will, with the ups and downs and the circumstances of our life. It's an absolute certainty. It's the only thing that one of the things the only things that keeps me moderately sane in this world is is by faith in the promises of God and and God has quite a bit to say about that future and the it's not pie in the sky it's a new heavens it's a new earth where righteousness dwells there's no locks on doors in the kingdom of Christ there's no police because there's no crime we're thankful for police by the way who are here now aren't we but we won't need any of those things there won't be any mean words there won't be any relationships to heal it's hard for us even to imagine. There won't be any disease eating up your garden. I don't know if there'll be woodchucks. <laughs> there'll be less deer, for sure. It'll be wonderful. And, and God's given that to us as a means to sustain our soul on a Monday morning. My life is passing quickly. God has good for me in this life. He gives good gifts to his children. But as a believer... That's what I have ahead of me. I can endure for a little while whatever trials are here. I don't mean to make light of them. But this, these are the two foundational frames of a Christian life. Fear of God and faith in God and his promises. This is what you do. This is how you live. You fear God. You cultivate a fear and awe of God in your heart. So that you get to the point where increasingly you're not as scared by other people. Why? Because of who God is. Has God ever been anxious? Never. Why? He doesn't have to be. Get that into your head, and you'll be settled more. Faith in God. If he's that powerful then and not to be feared, if he has promised these things for our good, wow, I can live by those promises. Thirdly, moving quickly, feeding on God's word. Go with me, if you will, for just a moment to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the first letter that Peter refers to in his second letter. And really, he's encouraging the same theme as the second Peter, encouraging godly living. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that may, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you are at any stage of the Christian life, but particularly a new believer, you can't get enough of the Bible. 
especially of it being taught and preached. That, that is just basic to Christian living. I, I'm a man who the rest of my life, I mean, if I wasn't preaching, I'm very happy to hear others preach. I'm, that's one of the highlights of, of vacation for me is I get to go listen to someone else preach. And it was a joy to hear Mount Mark Axelgard preach a few weeks ago here. Um, but it's not simply because I like preaching. The way I understand my Bible is that my continuance in the faith is dependent upon not only my reading this book, but sitting under it preached. In the brief time in, in our, Chris, uh, my marriage uh, for four months where I was between churches, one of the joys of our family was um, attending a, a particular church um, in the morning and evening. And it, it wasn't about, oh, this is good for us, family. I, I don't know about everybody else. I'm a desperate man. I'm a desperate man. If I don't feed and hear the word of God, I'm done. It's the way that he preserves me. It's the way that he keeps me. And yes, it is reading my Bible privately, but I think you know this. There is something in God's design of his word publicly read, publicly preached and exhorted. With, no matter who the preacher is, the man, there's, there's something that God has uniquely ordained about that public teaching and preaching of God's word to sustain and feed and encourage the faith of saints feeding on God's word. We are, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, to pay attention to this word like a lamp shining in a dark place. Imagine if you were suddenly plunged into the lowest chamber of an old mining operation. You say, that's really frightening. Well, again, remember the Lord's with you there, so don't be too afraid, but I wouldn't want to be there either. But in that place, I would imagine, there's no light that reaches there. But if it was a big chamber, black, shut off from the sky, and you were there and you were trapped, if there was one light, my guess is we'd be pretty close to that light and looking at it quite frequently. The word of God is like that in this present time. You you cannot get enough of it. You just read it, you read it, you read it. You underline it, you, you memorize it, you meditate on it, you sing it. You, you, you just douse yourself with the word of God. Fourthly, forgive. Why did this make it into the list? Why did this make it into the five? Fear, faith, feed, forgive. Because... We don't have time this morning, but there's some serious warnings about not forgiving. We are, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, as believers in Jesus Christ, to be people who are characterized by being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Lack of forgiveness hinders Christian growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, like, like few other realities. That's why it makes a list. You cannot claim to be a forgiven man or woman and then not forgive others. 
One of two things is either true. Either you don't understand how much you were forgiven and how you were forgiven by God, or either you believe that, you understand that, but you somehow are unwilling to forgive somebody else, to extend to somebody else the same kindness that God has extended to you. Colossians 3, very familiar verse, passage, Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13 We are to, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. In other words, in light of how God has loved us, we are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. The reality is, if you live in this world, you're sinned against every day. Every day. You live among sinners. Maybe you're not sinned against every day as bad as some other days. But there's not one day you live under the sun here around other sinners where you're either not being, where you're not being wronged in some way. Maybe someone should have said something to you that they didn't say. Maybe someone said to you something they shouldn't have said. Maybe someone didn't do something for you they should have done. Maybe did someone did something to you they shouldn't have done. Maybe someone looked at you a way they shouldn't have looked. So on and on it goes. We live um, as sinners among sinners, but we are those who are forgiven, and so we are quick to extend to others around, around us forgiveness. It doesn't mean that I never confront. There are times when we must, in, for the sake of the truth, go to someone and, and, and point out how they are sinning against us. Particularly a brother or sister in Christ, we are commanded to. But even those who aren't Christians, it doesn't mean they they can walk all over us. We speak the truth in love, and sometimes that means, hey, why do you talk to me that way? It doesn't mean we never confront, but generally a Christian life is one of constantly bearing with and forgiving the sins of others. In light of the fact that we've been forgiven, God has forgiven me. And how do we do that? For the Christian, it's, it's pretty simple. Am, am I saying that an issue that is so emotional and, and so, you, Pastor, you, you don't know what people, no, I don't. But I'm not naive. So how can you forgive somebody else when they sin against you? By this simple truth. I know that their sin against me, as great as it is, God never downplays sin in the Bible. He never says, oh, it wasn't that big a deal. It's sin. But this simple truth, I know that that other person's sins are dealt with in one of two places. Because God's not going to let any sin go unaccounted for. There's a reckoning coming. And I know this truth. That individual's sins are or either will be, they were accounted for at the death of Christ on the cross. And so what? Can I stand there in front of, of, I mean, Christ is no longer on the cross, but you get the idea of the picture. You're going to stand in front of the Christ, Christ bleeding on the cross and say, God, you know, I'm not really sure that that really, I'm not really sure that that really, you know, atones for 
how bad this person's sin was against me. Really? No, you're not going to do that. I know that either this person's sin against me was dealt with on the cross or that it will be dealt with in hell. And that turns me from bitterness to pity. Fifth and finally this morning, fear of God, faith in God, feeding on God's word, forgiving others as we've been forgiven. Fifth and finally, fulfill your God-given duties. Fulfill your God-given duties. And, and we don't have time, but really, so you have those other foundational truths about living a Christian life. And, and the list isn't endless. I mean, it really, it, it really is that basic. Do you fear God? Do you believe in his promises? Are you nourishing yourself on his word? Day by day, are, are you maintaining a forgiveness of others because you're a forgiven man or woman? You're remembering the gospel? And then with those foundational truths, then the rest of your life is, is okay, what has God told me I must do? And he's not impossible. He, he really is quite simple in what his commands are. Just let me give you some ideas. You, you are to worship God. That's a command privately and publicly. Uh, we are to love his church. Most of the New Testament is written to believers, has to do with commands about how we relate to a local church. So I've got to love his church. It's not an option. It's a duty. Let me back up. I, I, notice I said God-given duties, responsibilities. We pile on ourselves man-created duties, even duties and responsibilities that we create or somebody else creates for us. There's only one God and only one Lord. There's only one who bought us with his blood. There's only one who owns us. We are bound to fulfill his commands ultimately. So we got to ask ourselves, who commanded me to do this? Is this the Lord? I, I often you know uh, men, we are particularly guilty of just filling up our calendar, filling up our calendar, filling up our calendar, so that we're doing more, tempting more and more and more, and I know what this is like. And then we're exhausted, and then we don't have any uh, emotions to give to our spouse or our children, and we wonder why our families, you know. Men, we got to stop and say, wait a minute, who's my Lord, and who asked me to do all this? Is this self-created, or is this God-given? Because I only have to do my God-given duties. And there's enough there to keep me pretty busy. There might be a little extra time afterwards to go surf or ski or whatever, which, which is fine. I used to like both of those. But for the most part, the duties take up my life. I, we worship God. I love his church right there. It's going to take up some hours of my week, and I'm glad to, to use it, those hours that way. I'm to love my neighbor. I have neighbors. I, I'm commanded by God to live with them um, at work and other places to try what I can. I am, as a husband, to love my wife. That takes work. It's going to, I mean, um, it's a joy, but it's, it's, it's a task. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's not something that comes naturally. I am to love my children and to work diligently. That's a New Testament duty and respond, responsibility. I'm to provide for my household. I'm to take care of my own needs. I am to steward the body that God's given me. I got to sleep some. I got to eat some, maybe a little less. Uh, some. I, I, I'm. I need to enjoy the gifts that God gives me. 
when God gives me certain gifts, I, I, that's a duty, a responsibility to enjoy them. I, I am, a duty I have is to endure and persevere through the hardships of life. So when they come, physical, otherwise, I don't say, oh, man, what is this? I mean, who, what life am I living? You're just living a Christian life in a fallen world, and God told you that this would come. So your duty is to endure through that trial. And finally, We'll end on Second Peter, last verse here, verse 18 of chapter 3. This is a duty. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the responsibility I have. Your pastor, by the way, can only do so much. Your church. A lot of people are just expecting these days that you can somehow grow in Christ with a zap. Or, you know, is there an app for that that I can play? You are responsible to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. So those are just some examples of the duties that I have. And they take up most of my life. And they will take up yours. But that's the framework. And if you live within that four walls and that that characterized under that roof, some people would say that's constraining. But there is a diligent life. There is a steadfast life. There is a God-honoring, Christ-exalting life. Do not submit to all the crazy things that people impose upon you that you must do. I I mean, so again, I'll just close with this. For me, it's really busy. I don't know, basic. Other people, I got to fear God. I got to believe his promises, have faith in him. I got to be in his word. I need to maintain a forgiveness. And I just got to be about my basic duties. That's my life. And it is so, uh, such a relief. I know what I have to do. It's my work. And believer, that's what you have to do. That's your work. Live there and give honor to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for um, your word. We pray that you'd help us to live lives that are unto you. As we come now to your table, may you be honored and may you be blessed. As we remember your covenant love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.